19, we are wrapping up this series within the series. For the past five weeks, we've been walking through Mark, Mark 13 and looking at what Jesus has to say about the last days, about the time when he's going to return, uh, what we've come to call the birthing pains or the beginning of the birthing pains and so on and so forth. And next week, we're just going to, I know I said last week we we're going to take a little break, but um, prayed about it. I got to looking at, at chapter 14, and it's kind of a longer chapter, and I thought, I, I talked to my best advisor. I don't do this very often, but, you know, I want to give a lot of credit to my wife, uh, Jennifer. She is probably the best critic in all the church, because she just tells it to me straight, and she she didn't tell me this little break of uh, in the series would be a stupid idea or anything like that, not at all. She just, you know what, maybe maybe just continue in the Gospel of Mark, and so we're going to go ahead and, and do that after after looking ahead. I figured, well, actually, the things I wanted to cover in that other series is right there in the text, so we may as well. So that's really uh, good. Uh, one of the things one of the reasons I, I really wanted to do this other thing was I wanted to get to the topic of communion. Well, in Mark 14, 22, what happens? It's the Lord's Supper. So it just naturally comes up. But I really wanted to make sure that uh, we, we talked about the Lord's communion on the first Sunday of August because we, we typically take communion on the first Sunday of the month. And I got to thinking about that. We did not do that this month. We kind of we kind of stepped back from that uh, just because it's summer and we we just kind of didn't do communion this month. That's okay. But I, I got to thinking. I was like, we don't have to do communion on the first Sunday of the month. We could do it on the second, the third. I'm the pastor. I get to decide these things. What is going on? Why do I care so much? Now I know some people they they're going to get a little grumbly about that. Well, you know, pastor, we normally do communion on the first Sunday and they're going to want to complain and everything. And if if that's you, man, I really appreciate that you care so much about communion. But if you are just wanting to grumble, I I have just a little little request. I want you to write out all your complaint on a piece of paper for me. Dear pastor, I'm so upset about, and you just let me have it. All right, just all your complaints. And then when you're done, I want you to take that piece of paper, fold it up real nice, put a little shine on it, and throw it in the trash can. All right? Because <laughs> at the end of the day, we got to do what we got to do. And, and that's the way we're going to go with that. So grumbling, if you actually look at Jude, grumblers and complainers are not a good thing to have in the church. And so if you just want to grumble to grumble, that's what, what I'm asking you to do. Um, but if you actually are concerned and really worried about it, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. You know I will do that. Um, Anyway, with that all said, we're going to begin reading in Mark 13 today, beginning in verse 33. Uh, if you will stand for the reading of the Word of God. It says, See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves, each one to his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You may be seated this morning. That's the word of God. It's not the opinion of Jeff. That's not anything less than the actual words of Christ that he spoke to his disciples, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. 
I've titled today's message, Signs of the Times, Part 5, but stay awake. In fact, Jesus says this specifically three times. He alludes to it a fourth time in our text. The idea is that the church has to be awake. They have to be aware. They have to be ready. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, the one thing I would ask you to write down and take with you, and throughout the week when you revisit your notes, if you're doing your personal Bible study, the one point I would ask you to revisit is simply this. Until the master returns, the Christian must remain vigilant. I'll say that again. Until the master returns, the Christian must remain vigilant. People will say, well, what is vigilance? What exactly is that? We know the word vigilante because of all the superhero movies and the theaters lately, but what is vigilance? Well, that's the action or state of keeping careful watch. It's being awake. It's being ready. When you go hunting, you don't go to the woods and go to sleep, I hope. You're not a very good hunter if you do. You probably are constantly looking and watching and waiting for the deer to come your way or depending on what you're hunting, squirrels or whatever the case might be. Jesus reiterates this to us in the text. Stay vigilant, stay awake. It was John Calvin who said, Christ keeps the minds of believers in a state of suspense until the last day. And he does so, he does this so that we stay vigilant, so we stay ready. Some of you might remember Royal Rangers. I've mentioned this before. Royal Rangers, the motto for the Royal Ranger was, be ready. What was the one word the Royal Ranger had to remember? Ready. Ready to work, play, serve, obey. I learned that as an eight-year-old, and I'm 41, and I can still remember it. Because that was drilled into us, to be ready, to stay awake. And that is something the church, that, that Jesus is telling the church even now, be ready, stay vigilant. Now look at what has transpired through this chapter leading up to this point when Jesus talks to these men. Jesus began as he was leaving the temple. If you recall, one of the disciples said, Jesus, look how beautiful the temple is. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now, this thing's not going to stand for long. And we know because of history, 70 AD, the Romans burned the temple down. So that was fulfilled. That was true. The disciples come to Jesus as he gets positioned after they've walked for a couple of miles. He's now sitting on the Mount of Olives and, and he's sitting down and he's actually facing the temple, the text tells us. He's watching Jerusalem. He's looking over it. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to him and they ask him, what do we have to look for? When are these things going to happen? What signs should we be watching for? And the first thing Jesus tells them is, see to it that no one deceives you. That no one tricks you or misleads you. Because even the disciples were not above being deceived at times. We know Peter kind of stumbles into that by Paul's letter to the Galatians. He confronted him to his face. And then Jesus began to list things to watch for. False teachers who come in his name. In other words, they claim to come in his authority. They claim, they claim to speak on his behalf. Watch for wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, great persecution of the church. He said these are the beginnings of the birth pains. 
And in the last 100, 150 years, we've seen more Christians die than in the previous 1900 years combined. And so we believe we're possibly living in the beginnings of those birth pains, the beginning of the last days. We've seen false teachers arise and come in his name. We've seen more and more wars and rumors of wars. I mean, watch the news. Earthquakes and famines. And then there's this abomination of desolation ordeal. We're not really sure exactly what that's going to entail or what it's going to look like, but we know for a fact that a Jewish temple must be erected in order for that to take place in that position, in that spot. False Christ, after that point, false Christ, false prophets will do even more signs and wonders. And at that point, if you notice in, in Matthew, I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, I believe. At that point, Jesus says, if possible, they'll deceive even the elect. Because he won't be able to deceive them again. They've already been deceived. And they missed the rapture. They missed the, the second, uh, the, not the second coming. They missed the, the gathering of the saints. And then he says the sun and the moon are going to grow dark and things are going to fall from the heavens. And the more Christians see these things, the more we watch, we, we observe these things taking place, the more we know the hour is near for his return. We sing this morning, we shall see the king. We shall. He's coming back. But stay awake. We may not be present for all of those things. We may not be present for half of those things. We look forward to that blessed hope, what we call the rapture of the church. But there are those possibly among us today, possibly watching online, who will miss that event, believing themselves to be a Christian because they've checked the box of religion or they've they followed all the rules, but they've never had a relationship with Christ as their king and as their Lord. That's not me calling out anybody, by the way. Jesus said as much. He said it in Matthew 7. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Many enter through the wide gate, Few ever even find the narrow one. There's going to be many people shocked on that day. Why didn't I go? There are many people who wake up shocked in hell. Why am I here? But there is no one shocked on the day of the rapture because we're looking, we're awake, we're watching, we're waiting. For that moment, we can be in the presence of our Savior. And there is not a single person who is shocked when they wake up in heaven because they have had a relationship with their Lord, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we like, I've said this a few times recently, we love the idea of Jesus as Savior. Oh, he saved me. He's so good. He's so great. We love the idea of Jesus as King because we have this mentality or we can have this mental image of him on a distant throne and he's away from us and he's, he's just barking out orders and we're doing the best we can and all this. But the idea of him being Lord, the Greek word is kurios, master. We don't like that. We recoil at the idea of that. Jesus is Lord. That means he's going to have control over my life. He's going to have dominance over my life. He's going to be my, my master. He's going to own me. We don't want that. As especially as Americans, we don't like that. We want our freedom, right? 
But the thing is, he is Lord, or he's not king. He's not Savior. We have to submit to him as our Lord if we want to see him on that day. And in the meantime, we have to be vigilant. And ultimately, you might ask, well, how does a Christian stay vigilant? How do we stay awake? How do we, we do that? Well, by trusting in his sovereignty, by, by watching for his suddenness, and by resting in his surety. Those are the three homiletical points this morning, but trust in his sovereignty. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, look at verse 33. See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. First thing he says is see to it. It's three words in English. It's only one word in the Greek. And we've seen it before through this series. Blepete, or the lemma or root word is blepo. The ESV translates it as be on guard. The NASB says take heed, much like the King James does. And the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible says watch. Well, which one gets it right? Yes. All of them. It means to be vigilant, to be on the lookout, to keep watching. Again, we saw this way back in verse 5 when Jesus said, See to it, no one deceives you. It's the same word. Be vigilant so that nobody deceives you. Verse 9, but see to yourselves, and most recently, verse 23, but as for you, see, I've told you everything in advance. It's this idea, again, it's strongly hinted at here. Be awake, be aware, be watching, be alert, be vigilant. And to emphasize it, the very next word out of Jesus' mouth, we have four words in English, keep on the alert. But again, it's only one word in the Greek. Agripniete. It literally would be translated, be constantly awake. Be on the alert. It's not the exact word, but it's very similar. It's a synonym with the word Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the disciples keep falling asleep, he says, stay awake. But it's not the same thing because he's not talking physically about staying awake. Don't go around after this service and tape your eyelids open and walk around like some kind of sleepless zombie. That's not what he means. See, he means stay vigilant. Paul actually uses similar wording when he's charging the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6.18. He says, praying at all times with prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And again, he says it in the letter to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Why do we do this? Why do they constantly, why does Jesus, why does Paul, why do the disciples, why do the gospel writers, the epistle writers, why do they emphasize this so much? Be watchful, be waiting. Why? Because simply we do not know when the appointed time will come. The disciples don't know. We don't know. It's not revealed. Remember last week Jesus said even the angels of heaven do not know. Even those in the closest proximity to the Father, it's not revealed to them. So remain watchful and vigilant. Since we don't know, you know what we do have to do? Trust him. 
I mentioned this last week, we have to lean on him. We have to have this thing we call faith. That one day he's going to honor his word. And what the disciples don't know is actually a reflection upon who they do know. They do know Jesus. They do know he has just spent the last moments sitting on the side of this mountain preparing them, telling them what to be expecting, what's coming, what, what's coming down the pipeline, you might say. And they've spent the last three years following this man around Capernaum, around Jerusalem, around Gentile territory, day and night, watching him feed 5,000 people plus. 4,000 people plus. Healing the blind, healing the lepers, doing things only God does. And they've watched him and they've, they've heard him and now he's saying, you watch for these things. Because someday in the distance, the end is coming. And at that point, he's going to come back. And that's something I think they struggle with. The idea that he's coming back, that means he's going to have to go. And they don't like that. And we'll get into that in the next chapter when they really begin to struggle with it. But soon, that appointed time will come. Now you might notice in some translations the word appointed is in italics. That's because it doesn't really appear in the Greek. But the translators and those who've published your Bible, they want you to understand the, the implication of the word time, keros or kairos, means an appointed time. It is a set time in God's schedule. You cannot change that. I cannot change that. There was a time in my life when I would pray, Lord, don't let the rapture happen. I really want to see those Star Wars sequels. I don't know why you're laughing. There was a time, Lord, I want to marry Jennifer. I, want to, I, I had it in my head. I just knew because I had waited so long to get married. I, Jennifer and I were... were pure on our wedding night and and we had waited for this moment our whole lives and I was so excited she's she looks so pretty on our wedding she still looks pretty but she looked pretty on our wedding day and I was so excited I just knew the minute I said I do rapture <laughs> you laugh because you probably all thought the same thing at some point right and you want to know a funny story I went to put the ring on Jennifer we were in the Valley City Church is where we got married and there was a hole in the platform and when I went to put the ring on her finger, I slipped. And for a moment, it was like, oh, I'm going. <laughs> Just a little, little fraction of a second. And then I was so embarrassed, I didn't think much more about it. But it's an appointed time. There's nothing we can do to change it. That is God's sovereignty. That's his control on display for us to see that you're not good. It's an appointed time. Doesn't matter what's in the theater. Doesn't matter who you're marrying. Doesn't matter what's going on in your life. When it happens, it'll happen. And God has decreed it. He set it. That's his sovereignty. And so often we want God to be sovereign over everything until there's something we want to be sovereign over. Something we want control over. We may even come to the point we idolize our own free will and try to limit God in the process God, you can't do this. 
God, you shouldn't have let this happen. I, I had plans. I wanted this other thing. Can you imagine being raptured and the whole way up? You're like, Jesus, I, you have no idea. I had something in the oven. What are you pulling? Today of all days, I learned how to make cherry pie. And now, Jesus, here we go. You know, that, no. Paul scolds the church for thinking like that. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, that is God's sovereignty too. This is why so many of us become frustrated with God. It's why so many people get angry at God. Because we want the answers. We don't want to have faith. We don't want to trust him. The secret things we think should belong to us too. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, when God reveals something, it's so we can do it. We can carry it out. We can follow. And he's telling us, he's told the disciples all these signs and all these things so that we can wait and watch and be obedient. We don't want that. No, God, you should let me in on this too. I should be in the know. I want to be in control. Look at what Jesus revealed to the, to the disciples. Christ is going to one day return to rule. And all they have to do is trust him, to be ready, to be watchful, to trust in his sovereignty. And to make the point clear, Jesus begins to tell a parable, verse 34. It's like a man away on a journey who, leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves, each one his task also commanded, uh, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. Giving authority to his slaves, each one. Yeah, I read that right. Okay. The parable is unique to Mark. It shares some similarities with the, if you've studied your scripture and you know the parable of the ten talents, the ten minus, and Matthew and Luke. This idea of, of a man going away on a journey, it's not foreign to Jesus' parables. The parable of the Good Samaritan has this as a main plot point. This man going away on a journey. It's like a man away on a journey who leaving his house. Now, now, in biblical times, when a man would leave his estate or leave his land that he owned, that he tilled, that he worked, that he lived on, it was either because of work reasons, he was going away to buy more property or, or possibly purchase seed or feed for his cattle, things like that. Or he was going away because it was a religious thing. You know, we just saw a bunch of people in the previous chapter of Mark, they'd all gathered on Jerusalem because it's Passover week. And Jerusalem's probably pretty crowded at this time. That's why Jesus is staying in Bethany and Bethphage. Another reason people would leave is because they would go because of a family issue. Maybe a friend had passed away or to celebrate the birth of a, of a loved one or something like that. So Jesus tells this man is going to go away. And what's he do? He leaves it as nonspecific as possible. But they would always leave with the intention to return. Jesus clarifies that's the plan here. And they don't leave without a plan in place for their house. Somebody watching over it. So they give authority to the servants. Or, and we've talked about this word quite a bit as well. The Greek word there is actually doulos, which means slaves. 
Leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves. We don't like that word. Like I said earlier, we don't like the idea of, of having a master. In the United States, we, we often read this through the idea or the lens of the antebellum south, which was slavery done as an atrocity, a, a horrible thing. Horrible, evilly, wickedly done. In fact, the ESV translators, you may not know this, but the ESV translators were going to use doulos as the word slave, and they got to thinking about it and discussing it, and they said that's not going to be well received by the people, so they went with servant and bondservant, which has been more of a traditional thing, which kind of makes it a, a bad translation if you're afraid of what people might think about what the Bible actually says, my opinion, but in Jesus' culture, slavery was not done like it was in the antebellum south. It was done as a way to pay a debt. You would submit yourself to a master who was capable of paying your debt. Or you were part of a conquered race of people and the Romans would then enslave you. They would give you to a master, sell you. The truth is we owed a great debt we could not pay and Christ, our master and our Lord, paid it. And we are under the rule of a good conqueror. A good conquering king. That's the big difference. Because when you're a slave and you're under a good master, it doesn't feel like slavery. It feels like freedom. The Lord of the house has gone on a journey and he's given authority. But here's the problem with that. We read that, we hear authority, and we get this idea, we're like teenagers when mom and dad are gone. You guys, some of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Hey, I would call up my best friend Thomas. Hey, Tom, uh, my mom and dad are going to be gone this week to a trapping convention, because that's what my family did for fun. Hey, Tom, mom and dad are going to be gone for a trapping convention. I got the whole house to myself. Want to come over and play Nintendo? You know, because we were real crazy kids. Bring a couple of Mountain Dews, some Doritos. We'll hang out, right? The whole house is mine. We, got, we were wild and crazy in high school, me and Tom. Tom, had, Tom didn't even have his license. He had to have somebody bring him. But that's, that's the way we look at that. Like we run the house. We're given authority. It's my estate now. We begin to think that we're so much more than the master. We're given to do all that he does. This is the danger of when the master leaves and the slaves running the household. Psalm 50 addresses it. God says, you thought that I was just like you, but I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. He's not like us. We are not like the master. But this is the temptation that we've struggled with since the Garden of Eden when Satan told Eve, you will be like God. We've wanted to be like him ever since. We've wanted to sit in his throne. We've wanted to take his spot. But Jesus is clear. He's the one leaving. The slaves are given authority. And the authority is really stewardship. Each one is given his task. Each of us has a position within the church. Each of us has a role, a talent, a skill, a, play, a part to play. We have our jobs to do until the master returns. That's what, he mean, that's what I mean by authority being stewardship. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, Even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
For also the body is not one member, but many. Romans, in Romans 12, Paul speaks of this as well. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. See, the master of the house has left, but he's given us each a job. He's given us each a role, a part to play. And the master of the house also commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. The doorkeeper in Jesus' day was the one who would guard the outer gate, always ready for the return of the master, but always watching to be careful who he admitted into the house, who he let into the land and the property, being vigilant, but ready the moment the master should reappear to let him back in. In church, all disciples are doorkeepers. Not necessarily gatekeepers. We don't get to decide who comes into the church and things like that. But we are doorkeepers. All believers are doorkeepers. The Christian stands at the gate waiting for his return. In the meantime, we are also the slaves who watch the house, work the land, keep it clean, make sure it's an inviting atmosphere, maintaining it. We are the stewards as much as we are the slaves. Now, I mentioned I like Star Wars earlier. It's no big shock. I also like Lord of the Rings, right? I, I've read the books. I've watched the movies. And, and there is a beautiful illustration that takes place throughout the books. It's kind of the, the background of the first two, but the third, it really comes to fruition. And, and it's, it's like this. Tolkien, who wrote it, was a Christian. Uh, I believe he was a, a Catholic. He actually played an instrumental role in C.S. Lewis coming to Christ. But he tells this of this character at the end of the books named Denethor. And Denethor is the steward of this city called Gondor. Gondor is the last line of defense against the enemies of wickedness and evil. When the orcs and the trolls want to invade, they got to go through Gondor first. And here's the, here's the thing with Gondor. Their kings left. Their kings were gone. And there's this character named Aragorn who's kind of the main guy following around throughout the first couple of books. And he is to be the king. And everyone doubts him. Everyone uh, doesn't believe he's going to come back. And Denethor at one point says, no, the line of kings is dead. All that's left is the stewards. If you watch the Peter Jackson movies, the steward has this little gray throne off to the side, but the king's throne is huge and magnificent, and light shines on it almost continually. Denethor is just the steward watching over the city of Gondor. The steward's throne is much smaller, but he would have you believe it's greater. And church, I can't think of a better allegory for the church today. We're the stewards. We're the last line of defense against the armies of wickedness and evil and the want to come in to invade and pervade our families, our children, and our, our society. The church is the last line of defense for that. And so many times we want to be the king rather than be the steward. We don't want to take a stand for these things. We don't want to have to fight those battles because we want to sit on our little throne and feel like we have all the authority because the king is left. We want to rule the kingdom and act as though the king is never coming back. How dare us? That's not our place. We're very much like Denethor. And we're not alone in this. We're not. 
You see, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin of Jesus' day, they did the exact same thing. And when the king came, they missed it because they wanted their authority. They wanted to sit on their throne. And yet even now, church, the master is returning. The king will return. We don't know when, but in his sovereignty and at his time, all we can do is stay vigilant and trust in him. Secondly, uh, woo, secondly <laughs> this is why I should drink some water. I don't like to drink water because you hear me gulp. Did you hear that? Okay, good. All right. Secondly, we watch for his suddenness. Verse 35. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Therefore is always a weighted word when you see it in Scripture. Because it should, it, what it means is you should consider everything that has come before. Now it's this concluding thought. Now is the application. Now is the time to, to say, okay, he said all these things. Now what does he expect of us? And he began by saying something he just said. Stay awake. Be alert. It's actually a different word from, from blepo. It's the Greek uh, gregoete. And it's synonymous. It makes the point. It says, watch. Do not give up. Stay vigilant. Be the doorkeeper who does not fall asleep. Be the slave found doing the master's work in his absence. Don't get bored. Stay active. Be busy while you wait. All those things. For you do not know when. And again, that word when is the Greek word pot. And it means a specific time. A set time. And when Jesus says this, there's a finality to that word. There's a permanency to his words. You do not know when. In other words, you will not know. You cannot know. It's not ours to know. We have to be aware of those and very cautious of those who claim to know. He said, many will come in my name, saying, I'm he, will mislead many. And many people have been misled over the years. I think of the Advent movement, which is called about the, the return of Christ and said the specific days that they believe Jesus would come back. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses who've done the same thing. Even some within the Pentecostal movement as recently as the 1980s have predicted the day and the hour Jesus would return. But Jesus is very clear that is not possible. Not even the angels in heaven know. And yet, while we trust in his sovereignty, what we are seeing made clear is to watch for his suddenness. The master of the house is coming. The master there means Lord. The Lord is coming. And like I mentioned, we don't love that idea. But the truth is, we are given options as to only two masters in this life. Paul says, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. We are either slaves of sin or we are slaves of Christ. There is no in-between. And the master is coming. Jesus says, in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. These are the four watches of the night in the Roman military. They would take place in three-hour intervals, and they're named after when the watch ends. So 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 9 to midnight, midnight to 3 a.m. when the rooster would typically crow, and, and on to a little after dawn around 6 or 7 a.m., 
The point that Jesus is making in saying this is that when the sun is up, when we can look and we can see clearly, that's not when he's going to come. When we're expecting him. It's coming at a surprising time, a sudden time. Paul said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. And I don't know how you can read that without saying hallelujah. That's exciting. In the twinkling of an eye, in a split second, the king comes to get what is his, and I plan on going. He's coming fast, so we remain vigilant. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. Suddenly means quickly, without warning. That's why he gave us the signs to watch for. We watch for his sudden return. We don't want to be found sleeping. It's not a sin to sleep, by the way. Jesus took naps. We saw that. Everybody sleeps. Everybody has to sleep. Sleep isn't necessarily evil or bad, but I'll tell you what it is. It is the ultimate surrender to the flesh. You can fight sleep for days. In fact, there's been studies done on this. You might hallucinate. You might go a little bit crazy, but you can fight sleep. Eventually, everyone has to fall asleep. Even a certain four-year-old boy at the very back of the sanctuary. Oh, that was Izzy. Never mind. I don't know where he went. Linus, 10.30 at night, I'm not asleep. Next thing you know, he's curled in a ball out like a light. It's not a sin to sleep. Jesus isn't saying that. He's not also saying, and I know some of you know this, that sleep can be a euphemism for death. He's not saying, don't die on me, because there are going to be people who've died and clearly have He may find us sleeping, not in the flesh necessarily, but caught off guard, being lazy, not sleeping because of too much work, but sleeping to avoid it. Sleeping to avoid being vigilant. He's coming suddenly, and yet he says we must remain vigilant. Finally, he says we should rest in his surety. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What he says to us, Remember that his word is true. He said this recently in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We can rely on his words. We can trust what he has to say. What he says to the disciples, he says to everyone. To all. To all, meaning all who will listen. Any who will hear and heed his words. Like John reiterates in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hands. And if you've heard his voice, if you're listening, and even if you haven't yet, he is warning and he is pleading with you, the time is short. The message is again, stay awake. It's almost exactly the way he began the conversation. See to it, no one leads you astray. Stay awake. Here Jesus uses a different word. He uses the word egoriete, and it means to be on the alert. To be constantly waiting and watching, constantly ready to go. It's not just that he's coming suddenly, but that he's coming in his own sovereign time And it's surely going to happen, and all we have to do is be ready to go. John writes of this at the very end. 
See, he's tired. I don't want to sleep. <laughs> I used to say on the very last page of your Bible, but I'd said that one time in a Bible study. Look to the last page of your Bible, and, and someone said, Pastor, it doesn't say anything. It's just a map. So, okay, to be clear, the last page of biblical text in your Bible, Revelation 22, John writes of this. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. And again, he says in verse 20, And he, bear, or he who bears witness to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We used to read those verses, and, and I would have friends in high school. I would, I would tell people, Jesus is coming someday. Be ready. And I'd have friends in high school say, Christians have been saying that for 2,000 years. How can you say that? Jesus, uh, the King James, I think, says he's coming soon. How can you say he's coming soon? It's been 2,000 years. See, that's where we, we have to be careful the way we word this. It's not referring to time. It's referring to speed. He's coming quickly. He's coming like lightning. He's coming like a thief in the night in the twinkling of an eye. Church, he tells us to stay awake I am awake, and there are still lots of things that happen in front of me that I don't pick up on. That's okay. Watch for the signs. Watch for the things he's revealed will happen when the beginning of the birth pains begin. Prepare. If you're left behind, if you're hearing this, and, and you've been left behind after a great disappearance of Christians, watch the signs of the great tribulation. Know that the hour is closing in because the master of the house is coming. The king will return to his glory. But the question becomes for us, will he find his church ready? Will he find his church awake? Will he find his church busy keeping care of the estate, operating in his authority, doing what they're supposed to do, watching over his, what is his? The bride, will he find the bride pure and holy and righteous and seeking after him, or will he find his bride asleep in another's bed? Will he find his flock fed, healthy, and growing, or will they be scattered chasing butterflies and every shiny object that catches their eye? The very next chapter, Mark 14, begins, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how, after seizing him in secret, they might kill him. Even so, knowing this, Jesus knows his time is short. This is the last Wednesday he's getting with his disciples. They're going to share a Passover dinner. He's going to get another day with them. And one of the last things he speaks to them is of his return. And their need to be ready. Their need to have faith. We must trust in his sovereignty. Watch for his suddenness. Rest in his surety. Until the master returns, the church must remain vigilant. About the father's business. I'm going to move to close this morning. And I hope you look at these last five weeks. And I hope you don't say, oh, I really enjoyed that. I mean, it's good if you did, but I hope this series has challenged you. I hope it's stirred something within you. I hope it's made you more passionate for evangelization, for sharing Jesus, for talking about Jesus. 
Matthew Henry said over a hundred years ago, it ought to be the business of every day for the Christian to prepare for our last day. Because we don't know when that is. We don't know when that's coming. So we trust in his sovereignty. We watch for his sudden arrival. We rest in the sureness that it will happen. We want to be found working in the master's field, in his house, getting it in order. We want to be the doorkeeper watching over the estate. We don't want to just be the church that's watching and waiting. We want to be the church that's found praying. We want to be the church that's found evangelizing, working in the fields, bringing in the harvest. The church is faithful to his word, faithful to study it, live it. The church is using the gifts he's given us to unify, to empower us, to to disciple fellow believers. We want to be found a healthy church, an excited bride, a rested flock. And most of all, we want to be found awake and ready. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back this morning and I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand as we close and worship this morning. If you're here and and throughout this series, throughout the last five weeks, this has spoken to you and you're saying, you know what? I don't like Jesus as master. I don't like Jesus as Lord. I would challenge you today, find a place to pray and learn the word submission. Maybe you're here and you're you're saying, you know what, I've looked over the last days and I think we've got time. I would challenge you to find a place to pray and learn the meaning of ready. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to challenge you this morning. Because the Master is coming. The King is going to return. And how will He find you? How will He find us? That's the question we have to answer this morning. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Sing hallelujah.